What structure should you buy your next property in? Hi, I'm Sam Powell. And I'm Jared Krause, and we are the hosts of the Property Powers Australia podcast. And in this episode, we're talking with Andy Giobi from Binary Fintech Group, who is not only an accountant, but also a financial planner and a mortgage broker. Aside from how smart this guy is, he's also one of our good mates who likes to kick our butts in tennis, <laughs> whilst we definitely have it over him in the surf. Uh, he's helped many of our friends and family as well to buy incredible properties and save coin on tax whilst doing so. And in this podcast episode, all three of us talk about the pros and cons of buying properties in trusts. Yeah, and we also balance it off with looking at the pros and the cons in buying in your personal name because it's really important to to marry those two together to get the right uh, understanding of which path to go down. Yeah, I also asked Andy how he became a finance broker, an accountant and a mortgage broker and what that path looked like for him and, and why he went down that route. Yeah, as well as uh, we do touch on some what structures you should typically run when you're starting to build your property portfolio. Um, and, and much more. So it's a really insightful episode that we hope you get a lot out of. Uh, but before we do get stuck into this episode, I did want to tell you that this podcast is, is not the only way that we do help people for free. We have our How to Maximise Your Borrowing Capacity mini course on our website. So please head on over to propertypowers.au forward slash resources and use this tool to buy a superior asset and achieve a better return on investment. See you on the inside. Welcome to Property Pals, the podcast where we share everything around how to build a property portfolio from researching areas, financing, structuring, buying, selling, and reinvesting to live a life of financial independence. As a disclaimer, any information shared by myself, Jared, Sam, and the Property Pals team is strictly general and should not be taken as constituting professional advice. You should consider seeking independent legal financial and taxation advice from a qualified professional. All right, here we go. The lads sitting down having a chat around property and structuring. Thanks for coming on, Andy. No, not a problem at all. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, It's been a long time coming. We've chatted about you a lot on the pod. And we yeah we've been seeding this rages um i guess we should probably start with like something a bit more casual like how like how did i even meet you andy or and when did you meet when did you meet andy like i think i met you obviously through joel uh, a friend of ours that sam and i went to school with but it would have been of looking at photos it would have been before 2018 yeah, it's been a while. He he was definitely the connector. Yeah, and I, th- I think he is one on on the Gold Coast for sure. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Sam? You got a, you got a, a funny Andy story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're all funny. Um, yeah, I was on the hunt for a good accountant uh, at the time, and uh, then finding out that Andy wears the accountant, financial planning, and mortgage broking hat was a rare find in the industry, and um, <laughs> a um i've had a lot of sage advice from andy which i've been able to share as well through my knowledge and experience with clients so uh, i think you're probably just trying to get free advice is what you're going for (laughs) i had to buy your beer once every day (laughs) oh i'm still waiting for that (laughs) yeah i'll come into your office actually because you have 
No, I think I think the best thing for you and me, Pally, was um, I did your first tax return and then sent you the bill. I don't know, maybe you weren't too happy with the bill, and I said that's fine. I'll play you one on one in basketball. If <laughs> if I if I win, uh, you got to pay twice as much, and if you win, it's free. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm kind of—I don't know—I didn't think you'd be as good as I. Uh... So did so did he pay twice as much? Did he? No, no, no. He, he didn't. He didn't want to play. He didn't. He didn't want to take it to the court. He just settled the invoice and off he went. <laughs> it's just a typical me. Is I'm always asking for a discount, and Andy knows his worth. So uh, you know, you don't ask, you don't get. And he he challenged me, and I thought, look, he—I know he's looking after me, so I'll uh, I'll just put the brakes on it. Oh, I think. I don't have time, mate. I've got two kids. <laughs> you, you, um, you've got height and skill over me, so. <laughs> uh, oh, well. Yeah. well you um, you would have won that, but I was just, I was just bluffing. Mm. Oh, I love oh, it. I love it. That's a good story. <laughs> we'll film that one next, but I'll get two, two of them. Let's jump we'll into some uh, so, accounting yeah, questions. We're, we're supposed Can to be we talking end? about structuring. We could just chat all day um, about you no know, funny crap, but... Um, yeah, let's dive straight into structuring. When, Andy, when should one buy a property in their personal name versus, say, in a different structure like a trust? Yeah. Um, so the first thing we always chat about with clients is just trying to get an idea of what their plan is long term. Um, a lot of people sort of come in and they just they don't really have a plan of what they want to do or they haven't really looked at what what the next few years are going to look like. Mm. Um, so usually that comes into play quite a lot, um, depending if they want to build a portfolio out, what sort of properties are going into that portfolio, um, how many they're kind of looking at actually putting in there as well, um, or if they sort of just want to buy one property and that's it. Even coming down to things like, I had a meeting with a client this morning actually just discussing this exact thing. What's happening over the next few years um, with your relationship? Where's that at? What are the next steps there? You know, you're looking at kids. Um, is work going to be changing? Um, some people like to sort of just, especially now with the with the side side hustle culture, um, you know, a lot of people like to sort of just start businesses here and there, not actually thinking about the potential implications this might have on them with finance. Um, so it always comes down to just like asking as many questions as you can up front just finding out exactly what's going on and then really getting an idea of, of what they're trying to achieve. Um, and then sometimes that guides you with, with what structure would be best. Um, you also get people who just come in there, maybe a few of them investing together, got a bit of money there and a bit of a backing and just want to have things done in certain ways. But for most people, it just comes down to, you know, a bit of planning as to what they're trying to achieve. And that kind of guides that structure talk. Yeah. So, the, the idea in mind of having a strat, like knowing what your property portfolio is going to look like in five or 10 years of what your goal is, then that's going to allow you to know like what your property portfolio is going to look like and then how to structure from day dot, right? So for somebody, just as an example, somebody, uh, you know, has 80, 80, 90K wage, they're going to buy their first property. It's around 500K and they have a goal of getting to, 100k passive income in property and uh they want to do it through a couple of residentials maybe three to four residentials and and, and maybe a commercial <clears throat> or two down the line like where would they start would they just because i know what i did for me myself is like i just went up and was like i just want to buy as many properties as i can and i don't want them against my personal name so i just did my first acquisition 
in a in a trust, which I probably wouldn't I probably wouldn't suggest. And then I bought my second one in a in a personal name. So what's the yeah. regular route and why would that yeah. And and this is the um this is the thing that's always annoying, especially with these questions, is it, it always depends. And yeah. and that always seems to be the answer to begin with. It's like, well it depends. The thing here is it always depends on on how much money and, and things you need sort of need at the start as well. So if you were going to buy your first investment property um, and it was going to be, you know, really negatively geared, you put that into a trust and essentially you're not getting the benefits of that negative gearing. If you need to use that money at the start to help grow and help build things and, and get a bigger refund and maybe that's part of your, your overall tax strategy or something you've sat down and worked out, then, you know, putting it in a trust is obviously going to stop that straight away. Um, and then there's other, you know, the other side of the coin is when you're looking at properties like um, commercial properties, you know, they're usually very, they're very cash flow positive. Um, so that's something that maybe you want to put into a trust so you can get the tax benefits of, of distributing that with a bit of flexibility or the, or the income that that generates. Yeah. So awesome. yeah, a couple, you know, a few different scenarios there, but always just depends on, on that person's situation. Maybe they've got a lot of money up front that they're not, that they're happy to kick towards it or. Or maybe um, just based off the rent or whatever they're doing with it. If it's a short-term rental, maybe they've got more income coming out of it, um, and it is positive straight away, and they can prove that pretty easily. Then you know maybe putting it in a trust is good if they've got a partner who maybe is you know on maternity leave or mm. or not earning as much, and you can sort of take some of those advantages there as well. When would the case be to actually purchase a commercial or a high income um, under your personal name? Is that uncommon? Um, I, I don't see it too much, to be honest. Um, usually it's put in, yeah, usually it's put into a trust. Um, so I'm not too sure of any, any reasons why you want to actually have it personally in your name. Um, the other big benefit of a trust is, is definitely around asset protection. Mm. So anything that happens to you, just say you and your partner both hold this property in a trust, someone works in an area that's, you know, highly litigious. Um, they're obviously more at risk of, of being sued. Um, or if they've got bigger debts elsewhere, maybe creditors come after them, you're protecting yourself, um, keeping that asset locked away in another entity, um, and then you've got a bit of protection there if something ever happens to one of the partners. And that goes into your, your situation, Jared. Obviously, you, you're a um, business owner, so you've got that, that risk there. And I made, Was that your mindset initially? Yeah. Well, it, my mindset was like, and from what I heard is that if I want to scale my property portfolio and I want to buy multiple properties, what holds people back is, you know, borrowing capacity. And if I get multiple properties in my personal name, then, you know, it, that can hold me back because the banks will be like, look, you've got all these properties and you've got this much debt. Like we might not be able to give you as much borrowing anymore. So I was just like set myself up to just max borrow. And uh, I'm glad I did do it that way though because – my the first property I bought for 400k and we were getting rent straight off the gate for 570 a week so it was positive right so and then the second property uh is negatively geared just because due to the economics of like the interest rates <laughs> at the time yeah. uh and put that in my personal name which is actually going to be quite good for my next tax round yeah and, and this is where it comes back to to loan structuring as well in the sense of you know interest only versus principal and interest, mm. um, you know, being able to get something that maybe is, is negatively geared when it's P&I, but is positively geared when it's interest only. And, you know, being able to, to piggyback off that to, to help grow your servicing is something that we look at as well. So 
that you know, talking about that situation of um, per- buying in your personal name, when does it become a tricky thing to acquire more properties in your portfolio if you do have too many in your personal name or too much debt in your personal name? Um, it, it's always going to come back to servicing for the banks. Yeah. Their, their biggest thing is is a lot of them don't really um, look too much at what your, your asset holding is. You know, you could have a million bucks in the bank, want to buy a property with a $500,000 loan. You could easily pay that. But if, if, the, if you're servicing and you're not actually, you know, earning enough income there, the, the bank's not going to lend you that money. It doesn't matter what assets are sitting there against your name. It's all about servicing. Does that account for personal name and or trust structures? Yeah, so so they'll look at you as a total group. So if, if you're trying to borrow and you've got you're down, so usually when you when you get a loan through a trust, depending on the on the bank and depending on the structure of the trust, they can take personal guarantees from either the beneficiaries or the directors if it's a trustee company that's that's acting as the trust trustee, sorry. Yeah. So if you've got these personal guarantees on these loans in the trust, and they're still going to look at you as a total group and be like, well, hold on, you've got, you know, debts over here in the trust. You've got income coming from that as well, as well as all the stuff you've got personally. So it's but, always it's always a group. Is it whereas like if I'm going for finance for another property, say I'm going to buy, a pro- like I've got one in my personal name and I've got one in a trust and I'm going to buy another property. Um, if I buy that, whether it's in a trust or not doesn't really matter. But when I go for lending, will the bank I can I can hide that trust or I can the trust that that trust that I have for the first property, you know, they're not going to use that against my serviceability, right? Because it's I don't have a personal guarantee against that. Yeah, if, if you don't have a personal guarantee for that loan, then that liability won't be counted cool. against you. So yeah, that, that helps people borrow more, right? What was that, Fally? How, how, how do you structure that? Just for listeners, um, it's sort of like a key point. Um, you, can, you can have just the main family, like a main family member as the beneficiary or, or maybe as a director on the trustee company, um, you know, or as a trustee themselves. We always prefer to have a trustee company in place for a trust, um, just as a few, few different rulings and things you can get around stamp duty and stuff like that, but I can go into that a bit later. Um, but yeah, it's it's always Let's it's always <laughs> if you if you've got someone who you definitely trust, you know, like a spouse, obviously, or you know, a wife or whatever, um, and and they're the primary beneficiary and the director um, on the trustee company, then you know, obviously, that will be attributed against them. Yeah, tell us about the um, tell about tell us about the difference, you know, trustees difference difference in trustees and why you would choose one over the other, like. You know, I know that I've just got a discretionary trust and, you know, a company that's the corporate trustee of the trust. Um, I mm-hmm. presume that's pretty stock standard, uh, Yeah, I guess. So, so the main thing that triggers stamp duty is just a change of beneficial ownership. So when it's held in the trust, it, it's held on trust for those primary beneficiaries. So if you make any big amendments to the trust deed, that can actually trigger stamp duty. Um, because it will look like a change of beneficial ownership. Mm. But if you've got a, so just say you were an individual trustee on that trust and it was, it was you know, the, the Jared Family Trust and you were the, the main trustee for that and then you wanted to change out and put family member or something in there, 
that would trigger stamp duty for that change of ownership. If you wanted to change one of the beneficiaries as well, um, that could potentially also trigger stamp duty. Right. But if you have a company as a trustee company um, and you change that director, that, that won't trigger anything because that doesn't affect the trustee at all. Trustee will stay the same, still got the same company as the, um, as a corporate trustee. And then you're just changing things behind the scenes there. That's so you can, you can change, you can. Really key point for people who are listening, just to rewind and, and re-listen to that. Well, you can change whoever controls that trust without having to worry about stamp duty or anything. Because you change the, the, the director of the, the director. Yeah. 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 So yeah. a lot of this stuff, you know, this also helps a lot with, um, with estate planning as well. So down the line, if you put a, you know, primary beneficiary as, as another family member, um, you know, you can distribute funds to, to quite a lot of people related to that person. Um, and then you've, you know, got control over changing who the director is of that, who makes those decisions as to where those funds go. Mm. So I guess I'd like to just run through the pros and cons of a trust and then uh, the pros and cons of personal uh, buying in your personal name, because I know that we've alluded to it a little bit, but like, like maybe we should just bullet point a few pros mm -hmm. and cons of a trust and then we'll move into the personal. Yeah. Um, main things are the, the main benef uh, benefits of a trust is obviously the tax benefits. So you get a bit of flexibility around where you can transfer money. Um, estate planning. Um, you also get a bit of help on, um, you can anyway, on land tax thresholds. Ooh, so, see. <laughs> um, and then asset protection is the other one. So they're, they're four pretty big points, to be honest. Um, I'll go back through. So uh, obviously asset protection, we've kind of already chatted about that a bit. Mm -hmm. With the tax benefits, if, if you've got money coming into that trust and it's discretionary trust before 30 June each year, the... Um, the trustee decides where that or how that money gets distributed. If it's a discretionary trust, it's completely up to their, their discretion. It can go to, you know, this primary beneficiary or that one, maybe 80% to this person, 20% to that person. Mm -hmm. So what generally happens is you can move that and make it tax efficient. Um, if there's someone who's earning $180,000 and another partner who's earning $60,000, you know, completely different tax rates, they've got the discretion to move the funds where they want. Awesome. So that, that can get a big tax win there. Um, with land tax, this is one that's going through quite a bit of reform. Um, yeah. I'm not too sure how much you've had to do with it, Pally, <laughs> lately. Oh, everyone buying up in Victoria <laughs> and uh, they're, the, they're the devils in the property investing world, the uh, Victorian government. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we, and we actually had a case the other day. So, so Victoria, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, Victorian stamp duty, this is specifically for trusts, which I'm talking about, mm. is uh, the threshold was reduced to $50,000. Um, and then you've got a percent on top of that. So there's actually a land tax surcharge that gets charged on top of the land tax that you're already paying. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, the personal name um, got dropped from 350000 to 50000 but I wasn't aware of the surcharge. But um, that makes sense because often the... Trust structures incur a, um, a lower land tax threshold uh, than the personal name in most states. Uh, but that, that does make sense. And it's a big key reason why at the moment we're just, we're out of Victoria for those reasons. There's a lot of unknowns and the cash flow wise, it just kills any, um, any deal that we're trying to marry up with good capital growth and cash flow. 
Damn, that's crazy. And so with a trust, can if you were to purchase an asset in a trust, say such as Victoria, that asset that you purchase in the trust will be separate to like mixing up land tax, like adding land tax together, right? As in um, from a personal... Yeah, from a personal uh, to, to a trust, like it doesn't... doesn't yeah, so that, that land tax will get charged to, to that entity. Yeah. Um, and I think they, they charge it... I'm not sure if they charge it monthly <laughs> or maybe quarterly, <clears throat> but it's... Um, uh, quarterly from my anticipation, but it's always changing with so regulations in different states, with right? With the they, land tax, I think Queensland system. has a different um, land uh, tax threshold land tax as well. State-based. And they yeah, change between different states, <laughs> WA to Queensland. So it's a fun time to keep in <laughs> on top of. That's for sure. Cool. Yeah, I think I think we missed a bit of that, Pally. <laughs> oh, my the recording. Cool. The recording should have got it. Um, oh, okay. With this Sorry. software. So with so there's a benefit with that, those two benefits. We've been through those two benefits. Um, what were the other other two? Um, estate planning, which we text we chatted about. Um, so, oh, so with estate planning, sorry, you can you can put uh, other family members in there as primary beneficiaries. Generally, a trust can stay, you know, open for for eighty years. You can put different different rules in the trust of how they operate and how you want things to to go if if someone passes away and and what happens to those assets. Mm. Um, so you can kind of be creative with with what you want to happen to the assets that are held in the trust if you were to pass away or or something was to happen. Um, so it gives you a bit of flexibility around what happens there with avoiding taxes and, and things like that, as opposed to, you know, if a property that you're holding just pa- passes to someone else, they've got to, usually they've got a couple years to do something with that property. So if my parents are holding a property, um, investment property, or even just at home, they pass away and it goes to me. If I don't do anything within two years um, and I start using it as an investment property, then they'll, I'll actually have to carry on the, the tax implications from a CGT standpoint. Yeah, you can... Be- Sorry, just at the end, so at, at that two-year period, this is a good point to hit home because it's quite relevant to a client I'm dealing with at the moment. My interpretation was well, that becomes a uh, essentially an investment product. If it was your grandparents or your parents' principal place of residence, so there's no gains tax involved. Up until um, the date that it transfers. Um, so the date it transfers, and then you have two years from that transfer to sell it, or is yeah. So you'd need to get evaluation on the date of transfer, and then that becomes mm-hmm. the investment property. But you can hold it for an additional two years and sell it without having any capital gains tax. Holding it for an additional two years from when from well, when you, you get it as, and you're using it as an investment, or you just mean as a home. As a home, so the your parents pass away, and then you've got that the the transfer of title goes into um, your name. You've got two years to sell, like sell that asset without having to pay a capital gains tax. Is that correct? (laughs) Sorry, mate, I lost you on the end of that. (laughs) My internet connection is rubbish. I'll, I'll let you two run with this. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, well, yeah. So there, there are there are certain things that you can use to to transfer assets um, um, to family 
to, to step, sidestep some of these rules. Yeah. What other pros are there to, to trust before we move into the cons? Um, those, those are the four biggest ones. Before we continue today's pod, I want to ask you a few questions. What is your property investment goal? What type of properties do you want to own? How many? What size valuation property portfolio do you want to own? And how much net income do you want to be earning? Essentially, what's your magic number in passive income that you want to be earning? And do you know how to get there? And if you do, do you know how to get there in the least time possible with the least amount of risk? Sam and I have been helping people invest in property and build property portfolios for years. People who are now replacing their income through property, and we want to help you do the same. Right now, for a limited time, we are offering free property coaching to our listeners. We won't be able to do this forever, of course, so head to propertypals.au forward slash coaching. That's propertypals.au forward slash coaching to see how we can help you achieve your investment property goals. Link will be in the description too. And why to would honest. we, what, what's, what's the negative of using a trust? Like one, one being this, what we've already mentioned, the negatively gearing. You can't, uh, you know, if you're losing money on a property because it's negatively geared, you can't put that against your personal income at tax time and decrease mm-hmm. your uh, personal income for tax purposes, right? Yeah, that, that's correct, the trust. You can soak up um, future income. So, you know, if you had a 10 grand loss over a couple of years and then all of a sudden, you know, this, this starts turning a profit, um, you know, that first 10,000 is going to be wiped out by that loss before nice. you have to start distributing that money out, um, you know, similar to sort of how a company works. But, yeah, you don't actually get that negative gearing benefit at the start. Mm. So that that's a big one. Um, the cost to set up and maintain, it's not too bad. Um, you know, there's, if you're going to have a corporate trustee, there's things like the ongoing ASIC fees, um, you know, obviously a trust would incur another tax return and, and potentially financials that need to be prepared. So your accounting costs could go up as well. Um, so they're, they're just something to be mindful of. Um, the other thing is you, at the moment you do get the 50% CGT discount, but it's one of those things where, you know, there's, there's still legislative risk here with holding a trust. So tell us about that. What do you mean you get the 50% CGT? Um, so holding an asset for, for longer than 12 months, um, if you go to sell it, whatever your capital gain is, um, you're allowed to cut that in half. So 50% discount on that capital gain um, as it flows down and then whatever's left would, would go against your tax return and then be taxed at your marginal tax rate. So that's when holding that property in a trust? Yep. So you still get that discounting from a trust. You don't get that discounting in a company. So if you if you held um, a property in a company, you you completely forego that discounting, Got no discounting at all. So you still get that in a trust, even if you have a corporate trustee. But the thing is, yeah, as we've seen with with Melbourne or Victoria um, and the land tax reform, you know, CGT and and stamp duty, all these things are you know continuously being brought up. Even you know, Labor talked about negative gearing you know, at the last election or whenever it was, mm. there's still risks that these things could change. Um, obviously, you know, I'm guessing if it did for whatever reason, they'd probably be grandfathering for whatever properties were already in, in these structures to begin with. Um, but it is always something to be mindful of that, that things can change. Yeah. Yeah, wow. All right. Um, any other cons to trusts? Um, th- they're the biggest ones. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, yeah, and I guess it's obviously nuanced depending on the person and their personal finance situation. Yeah, another thing is, com is complexity. Um, banks as well. Oh, sorry, no, this is a big one too now that I think about it. <laughs> the, the actual complexity of a trust, um, it limits your, your potential lenders. So a lot of lenders don't actually really like people using trusts. So you cut down the, um, your options like drastically. If you're just purchasing a trust, if you're purchasing through a trust with just um, yourself and your partner being the, the main contributors to that trust, or at least the funding of it anyway, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of banks who, who won't even touch that to begin with. Yeah, so you decrease the lenders that you could possibly use. On your panel, yeah. So, so maybe, um, you know, I, I, what I've seen, it, it, it cuts them out a lot, but it's not to say that you're not getting a good rate still anyway. Mm. But you never, you never know, like you just cut down with certain lenders. Maybe they have a policy in place that doesn't actually suit something else that you've got. Maybe you're self-employed. You know, this bank's happy to, to lend to you through a trust. Um, but they're something, some ruling in their policy doesn't actually agree with what you've got in, um, you know, from your self-employed income. So, so banks look at companies if they've had a, a big increase in income. So let's just say one year you've earned 200 grand, the next year 300. Um, things like that kind of throw the banks off a bit because they're like, well, hold on, is this sustainable? What's actually happened for this big increase? Um, and that can, that can actually put you backwards and, and put you in a bad spot with some of these banks. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, you, you do have a, um, a reduction in your options, but it's still, still very much doable. That's so weird that a bank would look at that of like, oh, is this sustainable? And then decrease your borrowing capacity lower than what it may have previously been. You know, if you yeah. have an income of 200K and it goes to 300K and you could have got borrowing capacity with the 200K income, now they're looking at your income being lesser. That's so interesting. Yeah, well, you just don't know how, if people are, um, you know, fraudulently inflating income for, <laughs> for finance and things like that. So, you know, if, if, if you've looked at someone who's been trading and they're consistently, maybe they're growing by 5% every year for the last five years. And then, you know, right before, you know, they go for finance in their last financial year, it's just exploded. Obviously, there's a myriad of reasons why that could be legitimate. Um, but it's just something that they need to investigate and, and draw more light on analysis on your financials. Yeah. Um, so then that's, that's trust. Let's go through the, so let's continue down the track of um, personal, buying in your personal name. Um, pros, it's, uh, it's easy. <laughs> it's, um, why, e easy why, to... why is it easier? Why is it easier? Um, I, because... I don't know why I've been through the process, but just for people listening, like why, why, you know, think about somebody that's just, you know, listening to this and like, I want to build a property portfolio. Like we want to, yeah. Like, why is it easy to buy in your personal name? Maybe for your first property. Yeah. Um, less there's less documentation and and less analysis and things from from the bank mm -hmm. to begin with um if you're just a payg um, borrower you and your partner and you know you've had a good track record you know your credit score is good you tick all those boxes you know all they're going to need is your identification you know pay slips bank statements mm -hmm. um you know maybe a couple other little things here and there mm -hmm. and then that can really be it to to get approval um, you know, when you start looking into trust, there's, there's a lot more issues and things that can pop up and a lot more um, documentation that they need. So the process itself can be a lot more streamlined 
just for individual. Do you have a rough calculation on the difference between personal name and trust structures from an accounting point of view and what it costs to hold? Is it like a thousand bucks extra a year or any idea? Um, to actually hold it and... Yeah, the difference between um, the cost of a trust and the cost of just running your own personal name. Um, when you say costs, you're referring to all the setup and holding costs. You're not talking about what a bank might charge differently. Yeah, just to set up and holding. Just yeah, well, it's depending on accounting firm to accounting firm and, and what they've got and, and actually the complexity of, of the trust and, and what's going through. But if you're just needing a tax return, um, usually a tax return for a trust can vary between you know a few hundred and potentially a thousand at the worst, I would imagine. Um, if it's a pretty simple trust and just getting tax returns, if you're getting financials, then it might push it up to a couple grand um, just for that one trust. And then ASIC fees of, if it's a corporate trustee, have gone up to, to $310 a year now. Okay. So, so, so that, you know, at, at worst, you'd be looking at, you know, a couple of grand, two and a half grand or a bit more. But that's, that's ballpark figures. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of accounting firms <laughs> charge a lot of different stuff. <laughs> No, but it's just good to know because yeah, people will see they're going, oh, it's probably too expensive for me to hold the trust, so I'll just go my personal name. And they're foregoing the risk issues with your personal name. So it helps them go into the meeting with their accountant with a little bit of knowledge and um, yeah. they can be more open and understand what is the best process for them. Yeah, and there's obviously a cost involved in, in setting up the, the trust as well. Um, we always advise people not to just go online and, and do a DIY company or trust setup using whatever website. I was going to ask you about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. why, not, why not though? Because this is really good because a lot of people are like, oh, I can do it for like 500 bucks on myself online. But why, yeah. why not? A um, couple of reasons. One thing is you could make a pretty big mistake by putting the wrong person in the wrong place. Um, you know, even potentially, uh, you know, getting the shareholding wrong on, on a company, um, maybe putting the wrong, yeah, the wrong person as a trustee or someone as a beneficiary or other way around or, or having the settler as the wrong person or even having um, with trusts, if you set yourself up as, as the settler, the primary beneficiary and the um, trustee, then that trust is essentially null and void. Like you control every single part of that process and and the ATO is not going to allow you to do anything with that trust if it came under the spotlight, that is. Um, so there are a lot of mistakes you can make. You set up a trust incorrectly or a company incorrectly and then you start using it. Um, you know, there can be pretty big tax implications down the line if you need to unwind that or, or make some changes. So it's always good to sort of sit down. We usually just send them a questionnaire. You know, this is what we're going to do. Who do you want in this position, this position, this position? You know, explain what each of them are how they all work, what the roles and responsibilities are of each, um, and then really get a good understanding of who's going to be in what position and why, um, and then really you know educate the client on, on what that all means and, and what their obligations are as well. Yeah, awesome. Now, is somebody coming to you with like, you know, 90, 80 to 100K wage, and they're like, I want to build a property portfolio, uh, and they want to buy their first property, maybe their borrowing capacity is, you know, around the, they want to buy something for around 500k or something um, for their first property, uh, but they do want to they do want to get it to like that stage where they've got a few properties and they're getting 100k passive income, you know, down the line. 
would you suggest them, what would you typically suggest them to do in terms of starting with structuring? Would you suggest buying first in their personal name? And this is very general, like this is the, this is very general, right? It's, it's obviously going to be very different and dependent on a few different things for different people. But would you generally recommend somebody to start by one or two in their personal name first or what would you suggest differently? Yeah, generally speaking, if it's going to be residential property, um, you know, and they're borrowing 80% or maybe 90%, you know, LVR, mm. then it's, you know, usually best to put it in their personal name, especially if their income's around that, you know, 80, 90, 100 grand, they're going to need every dollar that, they, that they've got coming in. You never know what's going to happen. I'm sure, sure Sam has seen this a lot too. You never know what's going to happen to the property, other costs and things that pop up. So if you're trapping all those potential, um, potential negative gearing and all that stuff that can contribute to a bigger refund and, and help with cash flow, um, you know, you're better off kind of doing that in, a, in your personal name, especially at the start um, with residential to help you build that, build that up. The big thing we look at is just the structuring of the loan in the sense of, of interest only um, to try help them get cash flow because obviously cash is king, especially at the early on in the investment um, journey. So you want to make sure you're sort of freeing up as much as you can and you're not sort of tripping over anything to begin with. Yeah, awesome. And would you recommend people to buy more than one in their personal name before they start moving into a trust? Like say they want to get to like four residential properties and then buy a commercial um, over, over you know, a few years. Uh, yeah, what, what would the next step be for somebody? As no, it's very general, but in, in terms of structuring from then for their second and third property. Um, it's always going to be case by case for all of this, um, depending on what's going on, what, what's happening in the family dynamic. Um, you know, you might have one in your name already. Um, and then, you know, you're looking at getting a, a second property, but, you know, the partner the partner's reducing their income greatly. There may be reasons for, for putting it in a trust there. The thing is, whatever, truck, whatever structure sorry, you choose to go with at the start, more or less will be the one you stick with for, for a very long time. Because, you know, if it's in your personal name to begin with, you can't then move them into trust later without incurring stamp duty. Mm. So yeah. we'd, we'd look at what's going on. So your second, you know, looking at second and third properties, we'd be looking at, you know, how much equity, equity have we got there? Um, what are the servicing going to look like? What potential rental income is going to look like? Um, and generally get a good idea of, of how we're actually going to structure these loans to, to get you good cash flow. Sam, you're gonna you're gonna ask something. <laughs> He's broken. <laughs> uh, I got I got a, uh, a a common question that comes through in, in my line of work is we want to buy a property. We've got the cash. We don't know whether to go personal name or to buy into a trust. You know what should we do? And you know, my overarching advice, which most people will probably pick up from this conversation, is. Step one is always speak with your accountant and then your mortgage broker. They're the best people to give you that sage advice. And yeah, you'll go in, you'll have these questions that Andy's obviously um, pointing out, and that's really going to help you make those smart decisions that's going to set you up for you know, your long-term success. That's my little two cents. <laughs> no, and you can, you're completely right there. It is A lot of this is definitely guided purely on, on where they're at and and what each like each situation is for each person um someone who's you know getting a pretty big tax bill every year if you're going to start adding more 
or not giving them the benefit of using that negative gearing, um, you know, to help them with cash flow, then it, it's just going to become worse and worse because maybe they're holding an asset that they've got to contribute more money to and they're not getting any real benefit besides, you know, that, that capital growth. Yeah, no no benefit in terms of cash flow. <clears throat> yeah, and, and this is where it, it's handy for us, um, especially myself and, and another partner that I've got here, is the fact that, you know, that we are accountants and we started as accountants and then have moved into to the property space. Sam um, actually wrote down Sam actually wrote down a question to ask you around that and that was like, does having a background as an accountant and a financial planner help to give you a competitive advantage as a finance broker or a mortgage broker? And it sounds like it it sounds like it definitely does. Yeah, it, it absolutely does because and I'm not too sure how I don't want to throw, you know, anyone under the bus or anything. But the rules are, you know, as a mortgage broker, generally you're not allowed to talk about tax. Same same way accountants can't talk about investments and super and, you know, um, a financial planner couldn't talk about, you know, loans, for example. Legal. Everyone's legally, yeah, everyone, yeah, exactly, legally. Right, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, just like me on this podcast, I can't give any legal advice here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's legislation saying what, what different professions can and can't talk about. Um, for us, you know, being an accounting firm and you know, licensed with our own AFSL, um, for financial planning and everything else. And just from my own professional um, experience and upbringing, you know, I look at someone's position and the financial planning side of me just starts firing off with more questions like, mm. what are you planning on doing with this? What are you doing with that? You know, what happens if this occurs or that? And you kind of just come up with different strategies. They're asking a lot of questions to, to really dig down um, into that person's situation, what they're thinking and what they want to do. Um, then we got the accounting side where we're kind of looking at the structuring and the planning of, all right, you know, these are the different structures that we have available. These are the tax implications of each, you know, which one's going to put you and set you up as best you can. And then on, on obviously on the mortgage broking side, we're able to sort of chat with all the banks and, and compare lenders and, and do all the structuring on that side. So they do, it does all fit in pretty well. Yeah. Um, and then really, you know, if you went and saw a normal broker, they're only really allowed to talk to you about, the loans and the structuring of the loan. Yeah. And, you know, they couldn't really give you any tax advice and things like that legally. Structuring advice on like, you know, set your trust up this way. And you yeah, you, you can still, you know, talk talk generally about things, but as soon as you start diving in and asking questions, that kind of triggers rules around what's personal advice. Yeah. I have spoken to finance brokers where I've like sort of like said like, you know, what should I do with the, you know, what entity should I purchase in, stuff like that, and they you know, some will uh, allude to certain ideas and then some will just be straight up like, look, you're just going to have to speak to your accountant about it. So, Yeah, and I see that all the time. People come and they say, oh, you know, my accountant or my whatever said to do this. And it's like, well, no, that's <laughs> that's wrong. That's wrong because of this, this and this. <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time. And obviously there are a lot of, you know, good brokers out there. But the other thing for us is coming from the accounting and financial planning background, it's all about just building long-term relationships. Mm. So we don't want to just be transactional. There's a lot of brokers out there um, still in the space that it's just transactions. You know, it's all about volume, getting people in, getting the loan done, you know, see you later. There's no, no back-end service. For us, it's just, you know, getting in, building trust with someone, um, getting an understanding of their situation, what they want to achieve next, and then you kind of just, you go from there and you end up having them for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, and we've got clients that we've, that I've known since I very first started as an accountant who's still around now with us. 
So yeah, it's the best way to go because you're, you know, they're winning and you're winning long term versus just churn and burn approach in businesses is crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So much effort for little reward. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, you know, it kind of cuts both ways too, because sometimes we're a bit selective um, with the clients that we do work with, um, especially from, you know, a lot of all these cashback offers and things that were going on from, from banks. You do kind of get the usual, you know, tire kicker who comes in, asks a few questions, trying to get some, you know, some, some loan advice around stuff. Maybe they do go, you do you end up getting a loan for them or refinancing Six months later, they refinance somewhere else and they're just chasing these cashback rewards and, and things like that from, from banks. So, you know, you've, yeah, you've got to be a bit selective around that. Yeah, this is, this is a key reason why it took me years to find somebody like Andy and why I wanted to bring him on is oh. just having someone like that and not blowing smoke up your, your backside, mate. But uh, the, the three <laughs> hats that you wear, I mean, it, it, it's a game changer and... Uh, I just wanted to, I guess, let people know that just through this conversation, obviously seeing why um, you're, you're a close uh, business associate of, of ours as well and you're obviously my accountant and um, it's yeah, just great to have that knowledge source in, in my back pocket. <laughs> oh, same with you, mate. That's you. why I pester you all the time now. <laughs> that's why we're getting you on, Andy. We're just this podcast is used to just get free advice on tax, financial planning, general. And yeah. General well, and 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 that's the biggest thing here is is education. Um, you know, the the clients who come in and and you know you want them to ask as many questions as they can. You want them to have to leave having a good understanding of what's going on. Obviously, you can't learn everything straight away or you know from a one hour meeting. Um, but it's just that continual education for the client so that you know, they're comfortable with what they're doing, what's, what the next steps are going to be and why. Um, and then you know, they feel good leaving, you feel good that you've helped someone um, and that, you know, that education part is huge because a lot of people just don't really know enough about all this stuff. Well, yes. how, how are they meant to, right? Like you, you learn your knowledge through university, going to courses outside of the standard education system and that's, that's the issue with... Australian's education system is that it's set up for people to fail because they don't know any better. Yeah. Well, I, the thing that really shocked me, um, I remember doing this when, when I was at uni because I ended up, you know, similar to Jared, I started off as a tradie um, in my career path. Actually, I want to, I want, <clears throat> I was going to ask you, tell us your progression of career so people can see where you went from and how, like, there's different phases of financial planning into accounting and mortgage broking, just so we can, like, I, I don't even know, to be honest. <laughs> I, knew um, tra- I knew you were trading, but like, I'd, I'd like to hear, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, my, my story's got a bit of a naivety in there as well. So I I yeah. left I left high school and went on to be a, a tradie. This I'm originally from Adelaide. Um, I came from a family of of um, tradies as well, so everyone um, had their a different trade under their belt. So I. Um, out of uni became a electrician working on, you know, high voltage and low voltage distribution systems, which is a fancy way of just saying power lines. And then, um, (laughs) (laughs) and then did that, was qualified and then moved to the Gold Coast and then couldn't handle the weather (laughs) as a a tradie because there's no humidity in, in, uh, in SA. So, um, couldn't handle that. And then, you know, the companies were a bit different here. I think maybe I was just a bit too looked after in the company I was with back in, in South Australia. So 
um, through trade school, you do a lot of maths. So anyone who's, you know, electrician, you're doing a lot of trigonometry and transposition and all this other stuff. Um, so I became pretty good at, with maths. So I thought, oh, all right, I can't keep doing this forever. Like I'm not going to survive in the Queensland weather doing this. <laughs> <clears throat> um, and I had the opportunity. So I started studying um, while I was working. So the, the business school, you know, ran a lot of courses at night. So I was just working during the day, then going to uni after that. Mm. Um, thinking my, my, my thought process was, well, I'm really good with numbers and I like numbers. So I'm going to go study like a commerce degree and just learn about, you know, accounting and finance and all that sort of stuff. Didn't realize that it didn't really have much to do with numbers. Like as much as people think accounting is <laughs> just number crunches, it's not really much maths involved with, with accounting. It's, it's more legislation and, and understanding what you do with money and why and, and tax law and things like that. Um, so that's kind of how I fell in, into, started that transition when I was studying as well, um, working full time and then studying at night only lasted so long cause that was just a bit too, too much to take on. Um, you know, be working, you know, from 6am till, till 4pm and then, you know, have a quick shower and then go to uni till nine or 10 o'clock at night. Um, that had an expiration date on it. Sure. So then, so then, um, in my first year, I said, "Oh, stuff this! I'm just going to go actually see what it's like to work in an accounting firm." So I just went around to, I just googled whatever all the accounting firms that were around um, in my area, and then just walked in with a resume and just said, "Hey, can I just chat to whoever's in charge here?" And then just try to awesome give them resumes. And off of that, I think I went to maybe ten places and and got a, I think three job offers on the on the one day. That's but I said to them, "I'm like, oh, I'm." I, I'm like, oh, I'm just, um, I'm just started studying. I'm in my first year of uni. I just want to get some experience in the industry. I'm happy to do a day or two for free just so I can see what it's like. I was never going to work for free. Like if, if, any, if any of them had actually said yes, like, oh, you're more than welcome to come here and help with filing and whatever else one day a week for, for free, I probably would have come up with a nice way to reject that. Um, <laughs> but then off the back of that, they offered, you know, proper paying roles. So, so one of the guys who um, offered me a job, who's actually my business partner to this day now, he was running a multidisciplinary firm. So he was doing accounting, mortgage broking and financial planning. Um, and he was sort of overseeing all of that, but had people underneath him in, in each of those disciplines. So then I was just there in like an admin support role. So I was sort of getting exposure to, you know, all three of these different disciplines. Um, and then as time went by, I gravitated more to sort of financial planning um, and then a bit to accounting. <clears throat> and then he ended up selling the practice. <laughs> so then I went to, um, and Pauli's going to love this one. And then I ended up going to AMP for a little bit. So he sold his book, sold his book to AMP. Yeah. Um, and this was not too long after the time that they had actually like legislated um, or abolished, sorry, commissions and all these other things for investment for investment advice in the oh, financial, financial planning industry planners, like commissions for a financial yeah <laughs> what was that sorry around the royal commission into um i can't remember which one it was but it was when did storm when the whole storm financial thing happened i thought that was was that 2011 2012 or something maybe yeah, I can't remember. financial planner with one of the big four around that time and um, I ended up leaving the industry just because of the high levels of regulation and you, you kept pursuing on, mate. I went back into property. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I saw what was happening there and, and there was a lot of dodgy stuff going on that no one was sort of even blinking an eye at. 
and it kind of got a bit disillusioned um, with the whole financial planning industry. Mm. And then that's when I moved and, and took a bigger step, um, resigned from there and went to a firm in, in Broadbeach and, and was working there for a little bit um, before. As, we... as a financial planner? No, as an accountant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I had enough knowledge in, in the accounting space as well to, to go yeah. there and, and just work as, a, as an accountant with another firm. Um, and then after doing that for, for a little bit, I reached back out to my old business partner because we'd stayed in contact through everything. Um, because he was sort of my mentor as well. Um, and then said, all right, cool. I'm like, I'm ready to start my own business. You know, if you're happy to, to help me out and, and, you know, do whatever. And, and they were more than happy to, to, to help. And then we sort of started growing the business from scratch back up. You know, a lot of old clients sort of started trickling back in um, and then kind of got it up to a good space, brought in another partner to, you know, manage the accounting side. Um, and then, you know, I've been focusing a lot more on, on the finance, pure finance space. So yeah, cool. I have to, have to get you on for the uh, the mortgage broking hat that you wear um, on another episode. I think. <laughs> so so yeah, that's uh, that's where we're at now. So it was a bit of a yeah wild ride, but definitely don't regret anything that happened. Yeah. So is there more numbers in finance broking? Um, no, it's even less again. <laughs> 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 Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, being a people person and then, yeah, understanding a lot of that. I'd, I'd say financing, more the investment space is where the numbers come in if you're going into analysis and, and whatnot. Um, but no, nothing what I thought. And whenever I chat to people, everyone just thinks if you're an accountant, you, you're, you're good with numbers or you've got a calculator in your head. But it couldn't be, that couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> just a boss at keeping up with legislation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, constant uh, CV, uh, CPD. <laughs> Yeah. All the time. Love it. Love it. And um, Sam, do you have any questions for Andy finishing up at all? No, I think we've touched on a few key points and um, yeah, obviously really grateful for his time. And I'd uh, say there's there's definitely more to, to delve into. And if people do have any questions, obviously, please leave some comments below. If you like Andy, if you don't, I'd like to hear that as well. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> I, I, there's definitely a number of questions um, out where you take that accounting hat off and you put on to your mortgage broking hat, which would really benefit the community. But um, once again, yeah, we're just mindful yeah. of your time and yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, no, yeah. no, thanks, thanks for having me. It's been it's been good. Look forward feel, to coming back. Yeah, well, we're definitely just scratching the surface. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mate. Next time Thank we'll you. chat more. <clears throat> the knowledge life. carrot of uh, Andy Giobi. So. Where- <laughs> Where can we find you, Andy? Yeah, so so um, on the mortgage broking side of things, so Binary Finance is is my company. So you can just um, go to our website and on Binary FG, so F for Fred, G for Goat. dot com. dot au. So Binary FG. dot com. dot au. We'll put links to that show notes as well. And guys, if you want yeah. a personal intro to Andy, just let us know. Hello at PropertyPals. dot au, um, and we'll do an intro. We'll probably talk about some of the people that. Um, you've helped with finance and some of those stories uh yeah well even yeah i've got plenty of stories even around you know stuff we've chatted about today a lot of things that one small rule just change completely changes the structure and and the path that you go down Mm. love it love Mm. it all right everybody thanks for listening and we'll chat to you soon